This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. You can stay all night and play with my TV. TV is the thing this year, this year. Yeah, check it out, everybody. A lot of TV watching, particularly Netflix, and we're seeing shares uh, move up. The company posting its strongest first quarter since going public 16 years ago, despite raising prices for most of its customers over the past several months. As I mentioned, stock rallying up near its high of the day, about a 10% gain. Let's get more on the quarter. Gita Ranganathan is technology media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts in our BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey, also with us. Chris Palmieri. L.A. Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News from our L.A. Bureau. Uh, Gita, let me start with you. Uh, we talked about it uh, last night here on Bloomberg Radio. It seemed to be a blowout quarter for Netflix. Yes, absolutely, Carol. Um, a phenomenal quarter from Netflix yet again after having their best quarter ever in in, fourth, in, in the fourth quarter. Uh, again, here we saw sales really accelerating, subscriber momentum firing. So, so they're like they're firing on all cylinders. They gave really good guidance for 2Q as well, crushing um, you know street estimates. And then just given the fact that they're ramping up both their marketing efforts as well as their content spending in the second half of the year, um, subscriber growth uh, and momentum should continue to accelerate. So here's the big question I have. We know they're doing really well now. I'm a Netflix subscriber. I love the content there. But dear Lord, that is a lot of debt. Uh, how do they how do they reconcile their ability to manage all the the debt that the company is carrying? Yeah, so they have, Netflix has really managed uh, to create this virtuous cycle, um, you know, where they go ahead, they get subscribers, and then invest heavily in content, which then again fuels, uh, you know, more subscriber gains. Of course, as you pointed out, they have gone to, um, you know, the capital markets. Right now for them, uh, access to capital does not seem any issue, even though they expect to burn through about 3 to $4 billion, um of cash, um, so they are still free cash flow negative. Um, I think what investors are betting on is that they just with the kind of scale, subscriber scale that they're going to be uh, that they're going to be able to attain, um, that should not become too that should not be a, a, a very big issue uh, right. because at some point the content costs are not going to grow as rapidly, so yeah. it is going to level off at some point. Who knew negative cash flow and spending billions on content content could yeah. result in a nine and a half percent gain in the share price? And I do know it's all about subscribers. Chris Palmieri, come on in on this. Uh, you watch it. You follow the media and entertainment industry out there on the West Coast. I mean, everybody is going after content. To me, it just says the prices are going to get more and more expensive. Oh, no doubt. Uh, that's already happened. I mean, Netflix has, has uh, stolen some of the you know most productive people in, in television, Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, from competitors with hundreds of millions of dollars of deals. And uh, that's going to continue. I mean, their strategy is just to really just to overwhelm everyone, seven, eight billion dollars in program spending, 700 original shows. I mean, there's going to be something for everyone. So so let's talk a little bit about that competition that's out there. On the one hand, you have the biggest company in the world, Apple, 
that is trying to muscle their way into television and they don't seem to be shy about spending money. And then what is likely the fastest growing video competitor, Netflix, is Amazon, which seems to have um, zero cost of capital and a giant uh, user base uh, uh, to which they can uh, show these uh, uh, various television shows and, and movies. How will Netflix be able to fend off the Amazon Apple juggernauts? Right now, their strategy is to spend, spend, spend. Uh, I mean, you, you see it here in the streets of Los Angeles, the TV shows uh, being filmed, the studio space being booked. Uh, it's all about online TV. And, and you're seeing the reaction from the traditional media companies. Disney last week launched a, a streaming service tied to ESPN. They'll have another one tied to their Disney branded product next year. By the way, Netflix's stock market value is almost as big as the Walt Disney Company. Uh, which is pretty amazing. $146 billion. Yeah. Hey, Gita, come on back in on here. I mean, is it all about, I mean, they've got 125 million global subscribers. They got to maintain that and continue to grow. Is it about overseas growth that they've got to be a little bit more aggressive on or is, or is it more, right? That's where the growth is. Yes, that is. It's absolutely now an international story. Uh, we're seeing them um, go into. They're all, they're actually available across all territories now, with the notable exception of China. Um, but even without China, they have identified a 700 million total addressable market, and they're only at about 125 million. So still right. a long, long ways to go. Hey, Chris, one last quick question. I mean, you're out there on the West Coast. I mean, where do people, where do content makers want to be? Is it Netflix? Is it Amazon? Is it uh, Apple or is it just whoever pays the most? Just got about uh, 25 seconds. Uh, no, there's no question the, the streaming services are the place to be. We saw it in the past with the cable, you know, being a place where you could have more edgier programming. Now it's uh, now it's the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world. You definitely see it in the award shows, too, in terms of uh, who's, who's getting uh, noticed. story before. In fact, over the past week, a big bank report, stock rallies, and it drops back. And today, well, it's Goldman Sachs' turn being the latest big bank to suffer losses despite strong results. Gerard Cassidy is head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets, and he joins us on the phone from Portland, Maine. Gerard, nice to have you here with Barry and myself. Uh, Goldman Sachs, I don't know, I was listening to surveillance this morning, and I thought, okay, this might be, you know, the bank that actually trades higher after a decent quarter. Uh, that's not the case. Walk us through Goldman's results. Um, how do you see the quarter for them? Actually, we're somewhat surprised at the trading action in the stock because they did put up better than expected results in many areas. When you look at those trading results, they had very strong trading in not only FIC trading, but equity trading. Now, all of the large banks this quarter have put up very strong equity trading results because of the volatility we saw in the first quarter. But what really stuck out for Goldman was its thick business was better. And you might mm -hmm. recall last year, they had a very tough time in the thick business. And I would suggest the reason they did better in thick this quarter was the commodities business, which they're a leader in, was actually better. So I'm a little surprised the stock is trading down as it is since the numbers were good. So here's my question. How much of the gains that or, or earnings gains that we've seen in the big banks, is it attributable to their growth in their business? And how much of it is just the benefit of the tax cuts? 
That's a really good question because we all know the lower tax rates have contributed to the bottom line earnings growth. And when you're seeing earnings growth from Bank America and J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, you know, well into the double digits, 30% in some cases, I would say about half of it is coming from the tax cuts. So the core businesses or the pre-tax earnings, if you will, you know, they're double-digit rates of growth we're seeing on a year-over-year basis. So the banks are putting up good numbers, and it's not just coming from the tax cut. How much of this, too, though, Gerard, is, okay, good quarter, folks, thanks very much, but, I mean, banks have had quite a rally over the last year. Is it just a case of, uh, you know, maybe you didn't do a little bit more? Carol, I think you put your thumb on it. The banks have been one of the better performing groups since the presidential election in November of 2016. And I think there's some give back right now on the results this quarter where investors are taking some profits. The one challenge I envision, and we've been talking about this to clients for over six months now, is that the net interest margin or the benefit from rising interest rates will fade away. And I think investors are hearing banks talk about that in the quarterly calls today, that the so-called deposit beta, that's the amount of the rate increase they pass on to their depositors, which has been unusually low, is now starting to rise. And I think investors are nervous that the loan growth will not pick up fast enough to offset that pressure from the higher beta. Do you share that nervousness? No, I fully expect the loan growth to accelerate. We are seeing evidence of that already. Last Friday, every Friday, the Federal Reserve will announce the loan growth numbers. We are seeing a pickup in total loan growth on a year-over-year basis. We're up to 4.5%. That's up from about 3% earlier in the quarter. And I'd also point out, as with Goldman Sachs today, this is more from an investment banking pipeline. But the banks are telling us that the commercial loan pipelines are strong going into the second quarter. So, Gerard, I've always learned that higher rates give banks a whole lot more room to capture some of that spread when they're, when they're uh, borrowing cheap and lending dear. Uh, it sounds like there's a little bit of pushback from, from some of the banks on that. What, what's your thoughts on this? I would say that when you go back through the last three tightening cycles, the 94-95, the 0001, and then the 0406 time periods. What you'll find is that at the beginning of the tightening cycle, meaning the beginning of the Fed funds rate increase, the bank stocks outperform due to the widening of the margin for what you just described. But as the tightening continues, the yield curve flattens a bit, and the stocks start to lose some of their momentum. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. In the past, what then happens is loan growth will accelerate, offsetting those pressures. But as the yield curve starts to flatten and the baiters rise, that puts pressure on the spreads and the net interest margin. And normally the banks offset that with volume. All right. Interesting stuff. Gerard, good to have you with us. Gerard Cassidy, he's head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy at uh, RBC Capital Markets. On the phone from Portland. Our house in the middle of- 
next guest manages two fixed income funds, one investing in asset-backed fixed income securities that include residential and commercial-backed securities, the other a combo of fixed income instruments, including bonds, debt, and securities. Let's head to Atlanta. That's where we find Sam Dunlap, Senior Portfolio Manager at Angel Oak Capital Advisors, $8.7 billion in assets under management. Sam, good to have you here with Barry and myself. This market environment, is this a good one for you guys? Yeah, thanks, Carol and Barry, for having me on. It it actually is a, a really uh, favorable environment for us, and, and uh, given our fund positioning, we're we're uh, very overweight uh, non-agency residential mortgage-backed securities, and and mainly re- mainly real estate-backed assets uh, within the U.S. structured credit markets, and all the favorable data that we've seen in housing and the long-term bullish fundamentals have, have been favor- favorable for our exposure. So the big question I have for you, for a long time, we've been seeing millennials really lag in terms of moving out of the parents' basements, forming households, getting married, and then eventually buying property. How do you see this trend changing? We've seen some signs that that more household formation is taking place. What does that mean for you guys? Yeah, it's an excellent, excellent point, Barry, that the millennials, as you probably know, it's the uh, one of the largest generations in U.S. history. There are approximately 88 million Americans between the ages of 15 and 34 today in the U.S., and typically that date range has been characterized as the age group that with the most rapid household formation in the U.S., and to your point, the, the $64,000 question is when are they going to move out of their parents' basement, and the, and the good news is we're, we're starting to see signs that that's happening, uh, and the millennials, in our view, are expected to drive approximately a million and a half of, of household formations over the next five years, which is really twice the demand in, uh, that we've seen in the post-crisis period. And interestingly enough, that robust demand is, is expected to, to come amid historically tight supply in, in, the, in the housing market, particularly the single-family housing market, where single-family inventory as a percentage of total, as, total households has, has actually never been this low. So it's this very unique supply and demand environment that we feel like, uh, you know, the very tight supply with the with potentially surging demand from these millennials as they come online is, is going to be very supportive for housing and, and housing prices as we look ahead. Hey, Sam, on the commercial side, what are you guys looking at? And I bring it up because later on we're going to talk about zombie malls. It's an interesting story on the Bloomberg Among Our Most Read, but it's that changing retail environment and how that's impacting the retail space that's out there, whether it be malls, strip malls, you know, you name it. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a great point, a great question. Um, you know, there have been a lot of questions surrounding retail and, and malls, generally speaking, uh, in the commercial space. But in the in the non-agency CMBS space where we focus, we do find pockets of value and uh, deals that, uh, you know, if you're very selective in your credit work, you're able to find you know uh, deals with very high quality or, or perhaps uh, minimal retail exposure where you can achieve uh, on a relative basis very wide credit spreads in this current environment, which is typically where we focus is, is areas of, of finding uh, wide credit spreads and value in, in the non-government guaranteed uh, structured credit markets in the U.S. And, and we favor just generally very high credit quality and, and, and looking at structured credit as away from what we view are, are growing concerns and, and, and more interest rate sensitive markets. Uh, and we typically favor the 
very high quality uh, deals and, and, and both non-agency RMBS and CMBS that don't exhibit the, the interest rate exposure uh, that your more traditional fixed income assets like the Barclays Ag tend, tend, to, tend to carry. So you, keep, you refer to this current environment. We've had the Fed tell us now for several years that they're going to start raising rates. And then last year they started raising rates and said we'll get three more increases this year and four more next year. Uh, how do you look at your portfolio in this sort of environment? Yeah, so it's it's been an environment, as you pointed out, the Fed has, has been tightening on the front end, and uh, the long end has actually been relatively resilient, but we have seen, seen rising rates across the board. Uh, and we have typically been favoring uh, high-quality floating rate assets that – uh, the U.S. structured credit markets are unique to, to give investors that exposure in this fixed income environment and, and, and bonds that have real estate exposure, which have an inflationary component uh, as the rising real estate values are improving the credit quality of those bonds. So we tend to favor, again, very high quality credit with, relatively speaking, shorter interest rate duration profiles or less interest rate sensitivity as the Fed is rising or raising rates rather. So our income is rising on the portfolios and, and the credit quality is improving as well as, as generally the, the collateral that backs the bonds that we focus on is, is continuing to improve. Hey, do you worry at all about the, the total U.S. household debt levels? We've got it, what, well above a record uh, $13 trillion increases in mortgage, student, auto, credit card categories. Uh, does that worry you about the impact it can have certainly on the residential side of things? Does that mean it could be could impact some of the opportunities that are out there? Just got about 40 seconds here. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Actually, in the, and why we're so overweight, just generally um, residential mortgage credit uh, and, and, and mortgage credit uh, broadly, as we're seeing just continued improvement in, in the, uh, the the overall balance sheet and, and, and the credit exposure uh, as the rising home values are improving loan-to-values for, for borrowers. But the general tightness in credit that we've seen in the post-crisis period and, and, and mortgages has really improved the, the integrity of the underwriting standards and mm-hmm. uh, delinquencies in mortgage credit are actually the shining star within the consumer credit backdrop today. So yeah. very comfortable with the residential mortgage exposure and, and, and optimistic as we look ahead. Sam Dunlap, Senior Portfolio Manager at Angel Oak Capital Advisors, $8.7 billion in assets under management on the phone from Atlanta. Everybody, you put the word zombie in a headline. Yep, that's going to catch your attention. In fact, this story about the attack of the zombie malls, it is among our most read on the Bloomberg today. Here to tell us about it, Noah Buhire. He's finance reporter at Bloomberg News from our bureau in Seattle. Noah, good to talk with you. I'm here with Barry Ritholtz. Your story, zombie malls, is exactly what are we talking about? All that retail space just not getting used? Yeah, I mean, we took a we wanted to take a look at um, where the retail retail side of all of these. Uh, sorry, the real estate side of all of these retail closures that we've been hearing about. There was a a big one um, earlier this year was Toys R Us. They announced that they were going to be liquidating their more than 700 stores, and so it was an opportunity just to take a look at what's going on there. What does this mean for the retail real estate footprint in in the country that so many chains are are either pulling back. Uh, their brick and mortar footprint, or um, you know, completely going out of business, and uh, you know, this is obviously a theme that people have 
followed and noticed for a while, but the, the data from the start of this year really isn't pretty. You've had about uh, 77 million square feet of announced closures among national and regional chains, which is on pace to surpass uh, last year's record of 105 million square feet of closures, and that, that data Ouch. is from CoStar. And yet, and yet we still are seeing new malls being built just at a much, much slower pace than in the past, which raises the question, look, we, we know these are long arcs of time. There's a long uh, cycle before you actually break ground. But at what point does this industry realize the U.S. is, as you point out in the, in the column, is wildly overbuilt compared to the U.K., compared to Japan? We have five to seven times more retail space than they do. Uh, how much further downsizing... Uh, are we going to see before this begins to stabilize? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's really up for debate, um, and 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 it's it's a it, the answer has to be nuanced because some of this retail space is people are trying to repurpose it. You're seeing that you know out here where I am in Seattle, there's an an older mall uh, north of town that uh, their Simon Property Group is you know plans to redevelop, and you know they're going to take the parking lots and they're going to put offices and multifamily housing around uh, an old mall, and they're going to basically take that space and, and, and redo it. So some of that's going to go on. But some portion of this, and you know, we're not really sure what portion that is, is going to go back to being a cornfield. What I don't get, and Barry and I were talking about this, we were kind of teeing up this story and just saying, well, wait a minute, still about 94% of all retail sales in the U.S. know still take place in a physical store. The minority is online. People still go to locations, physical locations. So right. why is it that we're seeing so much of this retail space come undone? Well, I think I think it, I think it goes to what what Barry was saying is that we're just overbuilt on this stuff. A lot of it is still happening in physical locations, but we just we just have so much retail square footage in the U.S. and uh, we're we're seeing a pullback from that. Who do we blame um, for that? Who do we blame for that? Because is it that the demand wasn't there? Is it just investors? Like, well, who is it? Private equity. <laughs> well, that's a good point, right? Pick you know private equity, equity, family wealth offices. You have so much money chasing alternative investments such as real estate nowadays and i'm just curious how much of that is is to blame i don't know that's a that's a great question probably the subject for a follow-up article uh, i only have anecdotal <laughs> we're helping you out noah <laughs> i only have anecdotal information on that so i'll 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 sit on that let me ask you a related question to the overbuilding when we look at the current 20 to 35 year olds or the millennial generation or however we want to characterize it they consume very differently than the way their parents or grandparents did. They tend to rent, not buy. They Uber, they don't buy cars. Uh, they stream, they don't buy CDs or DVDs. How much of these changes that are going on... I don't buy DVDs either. I'm not a millennial. I'm just saying. Uh, well, but so, so anyway. it's partly millennial and partly the rest of us. Clearly, millennials have a tendency to be more experiential than than material they're looking for experiences not tchotchkes is, is that a fair way to describe what's going on in, in retail i mean i i i think that could be some of it but you know another you know factor is that uh you know household formation is is happening a little later younger people are getting married later they're having kids later and some of the you know purchases that would go along with 
you know, having a family and kids and filling up a house, th- that's just getting deferred longer. So I, I, I don't, I don't know. You'd probably have to go retailer by retailer to right. have an informed opinion about that. But uh, I think it's an interesting point nonetheless. Hey, no, a quick point, 15 seconds, though. What's interesting you write in your story is that some of the retail space is being kind of rethought, right? Redone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I mean, I, that trend's clearly going to continue. Brick and mortar is certainly not dead, um, but it's going to look a lot different. Yeah. Just ask Amazon because they're, they're, they're doing brick and mortar. Go figure about that. Noah Buhire, great story. Appreciate it. Finance reporter at Bloomberg News from our bureau in Seattle. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is the time for the drive to the close. David Rosenberg, chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef, on the phone from Toronto, where the firm is based, who points out that as nice as the price action was yesterday, it was the lightest volume day of the year. We talked about this a little bit earlier here on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, David, great to have you here with Barry Ritholtz and myself. Um, similar price action today. We've got, you know, a rally again. Are you still not impressed? Well, I think it's a become more of a technically driven market uh, where uh, you know the the 200 day moving average is as held uh, for the SPX on the downside uh, and on the upside we've had this convergence between the uh, the hundred and the 50 day moving averages so you know when I take a look at the charts it actually looks very interesting I know that you know there's there's lots of cause to to be excited that you know we're not getting a, a lot of negative tweets and the trade tensions seem to have subsided. But I've got to tell you something. If you're taking a look at this chart of the S&P 500 since the beginning of the year, and you're looking at um, you know just a, really what is a classic uh, double top here in the marketplace, and failed uh, new attempts at, at high, um, although the lows have held. This looks eerily eerily similar to the market action we saw in 1980 and in uh, 1990 uh, and again in 2000 and 2007. So uh, everything I'm seeing, you know, notwithstanding, you know, the narrative that you started off with, which is about what's happening today or yesterday, um, uh, the patterns I'm seeing just technically, uh, let alone everything else that's going on, is this classic uh, late cycle or, or very near mm-hmm. end game sort of a stock market behavior we're seeing right now. Hey, Rosie, it's Barry. So I'm a buyer of 1980 and 1990, but not so much 2000 and 07. So given that small sample set where half worked out really well and half didn't, what what conclusions can we make on that sort of uh, set of technicals you described? Well, I think each one of them had this in common, which is that we were in the, uh, you know, somewhere I'd say between you know the um, the bottom of the eighth and the top of the ninth inning. So everything that I'm looking at right now uh, is telling me that uh, we're very late cycle. E- each one of those other characteristics uh, of uh, attempts at making a new high uh, that is a consistently failed high, which is what we've seen consistently over the past couple of months, uh, is uh, is eerily similar to what we saw in those other periods. I, I understand that you know we have we have a 
uh, a sample size uh, of uh, just a handful. But then again, you know, how many uh, fundamental tops have there been in the past 30 years? Just a handful. Hey, David, how much of it, though, is just valuations that the market got too expensive, the equity market specifically, or that the fundamentals uh, are starting to come undone? What's What's the argument? Well, you know, firstly, the market right now is responding, of course, to uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the first quarter numbers, uh, you know, which have been, I think, mixed, mixed to positive. Um, so I'm not going to talk about so much the earnings fundamentals. Let, let me just come back to that. What I find actually extremely interesting is this. Uh, you know, when, when actually the multiples were hitting, uh, you know, two-decade highs, we already taken out by the end of last year into the first three weeks of this year where the market was up almost 8% uh, in less than four weeks. And people were saying, um, you know, I don't pay attention to the valuations. Who needs to look at the valuations? And now I'm seeing every Tom, Dick, and Harry permable talking about how cheap the market's become. I actually, I heard a CIO at an event in Toronto talk about how the last thing he ever looks at is valuations. This was back in January. I said, well, I don't know whoever would want to have a dime with that person. And they see people today are saying, well, we've had three points of multiple compression. The market's a buy because of the valuations. Uh, look, it, it's not just about the valuations. You've got to take a look at everything in conjunction with each other. If we're seeing actually reflationary growth, if the Fed and fiscal policy is really working, uh, then why is the 10-year note yield and the long bond yield actually down a little bit today? Why aren't these things screaming higher if we're actually in this reflationary trade? I understand, look, we've got a sugar high going on. Uh, we've got the tax cut effects that's going to boost earnings and the capital repatriation is going to be be uh, used to buy back shares. You get all that. You know, we're, we're, we're going to have a great year for earnings this year. A lot of it will be front-loaded. Uh, but nobody's really looking at next year just yet. But in the second half of the year, which is only three months away, we'll start to look at 2019, when we're going to have the lagged impact of all the Fed tightenings taking place, yeah. uh, the withdrawal of the Fed stimulus from the downsizing of its balance sheet. And, and, and the, the problem, you see, the stock market, by definition, is a long-duration animal. The duration of the S&P 500 is like 50 years. And yet we always just look at valuations on a 12-month basis. So, but we get in 2019, we not only have the lagged impact of the rate hikes, because because the rate hikes actually hit with a 12-month lag, we're going to have massive fiscal policy stimulus withdrawal next year. So I think this really starts to hit home second half of the year. Right now, we're just basically stuck in a trading range. Right. It's going to become a volatile two-way trading market. I think a lot of that is the two-year note was telling you this was going to happen yeah. um, You know, after Labor Day. You know, if you're taking a look at the leading indicator out there, it's the two-year note. The yield curve is flattening, which means that the economy, once we get past this artificial sugar high called fiscal stimulus, things are going to start to slow down. It will. And I think then we build up towards the recession in 2019. All right, we've got to leave it there. David Rosenberg, uh, Chief Economist and Strategist at Gluskin Chef, on the phone in Toronto. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.